Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to episode 12 of The Milkman of St. Gaff's. I would like to start by giving a shout-out to some new patrons. Paul S., Fly Sprayer, Kim Driggs, Fly Sprayer, Christopher Batinsi, Fly Sprayer, and Jeremiah Gillette, who I have not seen for many years, is an apprentice. Thank you very much to all of you for your support. I'd also like to remind you about the patron-only podcast, Once Out of Nature, I released a short prologue last week, and we'll be putting out a full episode next week. And with that, let's get to episode 12. The title is The Cabbage. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gav's, starring Howie the Milkman. I was stunned by what Inspector Mowbray had said. I didn't think in a million years that I'd have to decide between my duty to my country and doing what the police told me to do. The police were capable of terrible things, I knew, but the milkman were like a family to me now. In bed I tossed and turned, but I'd forgotten to put out the stove and now it was too hot in my room. In the dimness 
I stared at the little picture of a ship on my wall and tried to imagine that I was off sailing somewhere, but it was no use. Opening the window helped a bit. I stuck my head out and took a deep breath of the cool sea air. It smelled like freedom and calmness. Like the night air was beckoning. Even the black hull in the shipyard seemed warm and comforting somehow. This room, the shipyard, the picture on the wall, it's like all of the town belonged to me, and none of it felt so dear as it did now when the prospect of being shipped off to some horrible island loomed in front of me. Birds were starting to chirp outside, and I thought maybe I had fallen asleep for a while without noticing. I figured I'd just start out early to see Travis. Downstairs, I walked out the front door of the building, and my eyes locked with the dead gaze of Beaver. He was sitting in a milk truck on the other side of the street. He was just sitting there, staring at me. He made me nervous, but I had nothing to hide yet, so I crossed the street to say hello and ask what he was doing there. But a couple of steps off the sidewalk, he started the truck and drove off. He didn't say a word, but even driving off he kept his baleful eyes right on me. Maybe he'd seen Inspector Mowbray? There was nothing I could do now. So I began the long walk out of town towards the fisherman's cottage. The town was quiet. The baker hadn't started his rounds yet, and the damp air clung to me. Looking up at the neat and tidy houses, I thought about all the care that went into the little lawns, painting the boards to keep the sea salt out, little knick-knacks placed just so on the porches and I wondered if I would ever have a house like this of my own. There was no reason to think it was impossible, but somehow it seemed like the fates weren't going to leave me to a settled existence keeping up a home. But you never know. On the gravel road out to the cottage, the dawn was just appearing. I knew I didn't want to leave this island. I had real friends here. But how could I avoid the police? All sorts of scenarios played out in my head. I thought about taking Travis's boat and rowing it all the way to the mainland. I could bring Stormy with me and we could start a new life in Mingsbite. Or I could be a double agent and tell the police I was working with them, but actually I'd keep working for the milkmen and only tell the police things that didn't matter. But Mowbray seemed to know a lot more than I did already. The idea of betraying the milkman made me feel sick. But looking out over the water, I could just see myself with my own place in Buckle, taking a morning stroll in the morning, tending to the garden with Stormy, I could meet new friends there. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But I did fear Corwin, and I wondered how far he would go to track me down. Later, Travis and I were out on his boat. I looked out over the sea and the coast. I'd never really gotten to look at St. Gaff's from the water. Part of it looked like big slabs of black stone sliding into the water. There were broken cliffs like some god or great beast was clawing at the shore to keep from being pulled down. It was still really early in the morning and the sky was blood red. 
It was one of those mornings when the red moon kept shining in the sky, even though the sun was up over the horizon and peeking through the clouds. I nodded off a bit, and Travis grabbed my shoulder. You okay there, Howie? Sure, I just didn't get much sleep last night. Not gonna throw your line in. I don't know how. Here, just pull it back. Put your finger on this lever and cast like this. And then what happens? Now just wait and see if you get a bite. Pull it in bit by bit to make the bait look alive. Travis cast his line too, and there we sat in the quiet morning waiting for fish. It was a profound moment between two men on a fishing skiff, but I was distraught by what Inspector Mowbray had said. Travis? Yes, Howie. How come everyone in town treats you like you're so different? He raised his eyebrows a bit when I said this, but he didn't take his eyes off the line. Oh, just because of my beliefs. But you believe what everyone else does, don't you? Nearly everyone in town goes to church on Sundays. Aye, they do, but going to church isn't the same as, well... In church, it's all good news, forgiveness, like someone's watching out for you and everything's going to be okay, and I'm not sure how much the townsfolk really believe even that much. He was quiet for a minute. They also don't believe that I'm a seeker, and he looked at me. Do you think you could take this boat all the way to the mainland? Just curious. Well, no reason why not, if you didn't get lost. Might take you a day and a night. He turned back to his line. Howie, we've spoken a couple of times. Did you ever think that you might be a seeker? Me? No. I have my spells, but I never felt like catching a whale or anything like that. Why, do you think I might be one? I do. And what does it mean, that I can catch whales? Maybe one day. Something occurred to me. If I'm a seeker, could I use it like a weapon? He turned and gave me a sharp look. No, Howie. You can't ever hurt anyone. Have you? No, no, of course not. I meant by accident, without knowing what I was doing. That's what I meant. He looked perplexed at this and didn't say anything right away, so I changed the subject. Is Naomi a seeker too? His face hardened and he pulled in his line. We'd better be getting back. It was a long walk home. The streets were still empty when I got to town. Most people were probably listening to Father Whelan droning on about the war and doing our bit. I walked past the church. There was a statue out front of some saint or other, and I noticed that the foundation was cracked, and I was sure it wasn't cracked before. But I just went back to my room and passed out. I woke up, and the sun was shining in. I felt pretty good for a while, lying there, before I remembered that I had to tell Mowbray something by tonight. I didn't have any food in the house, and I was hungry. For a while, I just laid there, thinking about being hungry and about Mowbray and Corwin. Then I remembered my resolution to tell Stormy everything. That made me feel better again. 
I would tell her and we would decide together as a couple. She'd know what to do. I hopped up and walked as fast as I could to see Stormy. And when I got there, Stormy and Mr. Greenwood were just finishing up lunch. Would you like a sandwich, Howie? Yes, please, Mr. Greenwood. He disappeared inside. Such a nice man. Then Stormy picked something up off the table and showed me. It's here, the new issue. I was a bit nervous to tell Stormy everything, so I thought that if we just relaxed a bit and read some Eliza Pike, I might feel more at ease. And Mr. Greenwood was back with some food. I'll leave you two to your magazine, he said with a wink and went back into the house. I pulled my chair up beside Stormy's and ate while she read aloud. In the story, Eliza caught a scoundrel who'd abducted a child. She interrogated him under a harsh electric light until he broke down and told the truth. And the truth was something truly shocking. The scoundrel said that there was a ring of policemen in charge of abducting children. It was the bad police officers who put him up to it. So Eliza worked her contacts in the police department, going out for a glass of whiskey with one and asking him subtle questions about his colleagues, late nights surveilling the suspects. She was shocked to find out that it was true. The police were up to no good. She took pictures, gathered evidence, and then made her move. She met with the police chief in his office and told him everything she knew. She showed him pictures and the chief was stunned. The chief promised that he would open an investigation and weed out the bad apples. The town was a safer place now and the children were safe too. Walking out of the office, Eliza thought to herself, this is what it means to have an unflinching commitment to truth and justice. You must always do the right thing, tell the truth. Don't blindly trust how things look because sometimes those we trust can be up to no good. But the important thing is that we don't take matters into our own hands, but trust the authorities to do the right thing. As Stormy put the book down, Eliza's words echoed through my brain. Always trust the police and never lie. I took a deep breath and began. Stormy, I want to tell you something, and it's going to be pretty surprising but I feel I have to do the right thing. Last night, a police officer came to see me. She said that she knew about some of the things that I did wrong and that I was going to be arrested if I didn't do what she asked. What? What things did you do wrong? No, let me finish. But what things? Well, she says that when we went up north to your aunts, she knows that really I, I took the truck without permission. That's it? But you had permission to take the truck, right? And you brought it back anyways. I hesitated a moment, staring right at the old army radio that I'd left under a bench weeks ago, still wishing that I could listen to Eliza on the radio. No, Stormy, that's not all. She also thinks I had something to do with whoever killed Billings. And she thinks I know something about where Professor Florsham disappeared to. But you didn't have anything to do with any of that stuff. N no So what difference does it make? What does she want you to do? She wants me to inform on the milkmen. Inform her about what? I don't know. 
She thinks they're up to no good, something about them going underground. Are they? I don't know. I don't think so, but maybe. Howie, this doesn't make any sense. You didn't do anything wrong, and the milkmen are just delivering milk. She's just trying to scare you for some reason. But it sounded really serious. She said she'd protect me as a witness, that I'd get a farm on Buckle, and that it, in exchange for me reporting on the milkmen, I could live on a farm out there with you. With me? What does this have to do with me? She says she knows that you were with me when I went up north, and that that made you an accessory to the crime. I'm not an accessory to anything. We did nothing wrong at all. I would just ignore her. And live on a farm in County Buckle? Yuck! Maybe we could raise rabbits. Ha, right. No way I'm going near a farm. I was a bit surprised that she wouldn't want to live on a farm with me, but right now I had to decide what to do about Mowbray. So you think I should just not tell Mowbray anything? Should I tell Corwin? Yes, tell Corwin. Maybe he'll know why the police would want you to report on the milkmen. The whole thing is ridiculous. So we made up our mind. I would tell Corwin everything. Later, walking home, I realized that I'd been a bit vague about some of the things Mowbray had said. I hadn't mentioned that, according to Mowbray, the milkman had an interest in me because of the special things I could do. But maybe telling Stormy absolutely everything would have been too much in one sitting. I decided that the next time we talked, I would tell her about my spells so that she would start to understand me a bit better. I was walking to the milk station to see if I could talk to Corwin. I took the long way to the station, trying to convince myself that I was just maybe going to do some food shopping on the way. But really, I was just wasting time because I was nervous about talking to Corwin, and I didn't exactly know what I was going to say. I went past a grocer's shop and heard a familiar tapping sound, and then a familiar voice. My neighbor was in there with her stick, and she didn't sound too happy. She was arguing with the shopkeeper about something. I went in. Everything okay? I told her not to come in here. She smells. It bothers the customers. You smell. I don't smell. She's my neighbor. I'll take her home. Thank you. My neighbor objected a bit, but I steered her out onto the sidewalk and towards home. I looked back and noticed the fat cop talking to the shopkeeper on the sidewalk. They were watching us. We walked a bit, and then she poked me in the side, then looked at me with a mischievous grin. She opened her coat, and I covered my nose at the stench. But she showed me what she had. Oh God, did you steal that? My cabbage. My cabbage. My cabbage. She'd stolen a cabbage, and now I was helping her get away. I looked back at the fat cop who was following a block behind. I hurried my neighbor along as the full implications of the situation dawned on me. I was now an accessory to shoplifting, and the police had me dead to rights. I knew what this meant. I'd be arrested, the deal would be off. After a high-profile arrest out in the street, I'd have no value to Mowbray as a secret witness. Corwin would know that I'd flipped. I couldn't do anything about it now. We got home and up the stairs. 
She showed me again before going inside. Cabbage? Cabbage? Maybe later, thanks. I was starting to panic. I looked out the window, and sure enough, the fat cop was there looking up at me. I ran down the stairs and out the back door where the garbage was. I walked up the pier and past the post where Pyman had been tied. I didn't want to end up like that, and I thought my only chance was to run to the police station and tell Mowbray everything. On my way, I was full of sorrow and regret at all of the bad choices I'd made. I should have been a shipbuilder, hanging from the ropes and punching rivets all day like Travis. No one would have bothered me, and I would have bothered no one. But I just had to get involved in the world of intrigue and national security. My love of country and sense of duty had come back to bite me. On the plus side, I was sure that Stormy would eventually see how nice life on a farm could be, and at least we'd have each other, and we'd have a great story to tell. That thought was interrupted when I caught my foot on a crack in the sidewalk. I went down fast and whacked my head hard on the concrete, and everything went dark. I felt I was falling and falling. Stormy was there, waking me up with smiles and sunshine and rainbows all around her, and we hopped off with the bunnies across the field, until we all got scared by the sound of a giant sucking monster. It was coming after us, turning the sky dark. And then I woke up, and it was pitch black. But the noise was still there, sucking, breathing, snoring, I couldn't tell. I was under sheets, and my head hurt a lot. My eyes got used to the dark a bit, and I saw that I was on a kind of table, and beside me was someone else covered in sheets, on his back with tubes coming out of his mouth. Help! I cried out, Help! I heard some shuffling, and then in walked Dr. Barrett. He was holding a lamp, and I figured out where I was, and that it was McMurdle on the other table, snoring away in his coma. Howie, it's okay. Don't get worked up. Someone found you passed out on the street, and we brought you here. You should be fine, just a bad bump on the head. And he yawned. Thank you, Doctor. I don't know what happened. Looks like you tripped on a broken piece of sidewalk. It was unusual. The concrete was split right through. I was really sleepy still, so I laid my head back on the pillow. You just rest, Howie. You'll be fine. And he walked back out of the room. The pillow was soft and probably filled with feathers. It was like floating on a cloud. And then I remembered. Doctor! Doctor! He rushed back in. Yes? What time is it? Time. It must be three or four in the morning. Just relax, Howie. Get some sleep. My face went numb when I realized the deadline had passed and Inspector Mowbray would be out there looking for me. There was only one thing I could do now. I struggled to get up. I had no boots on. I couldn't find them. Howie, just lie down. You're fine. But I kept looking, getting more and more scared. Who knows that I'm here? No one. Me, the gentleman who found you and came to get me. And I suppose anyone who walked by while you were unconscious and saw us take you here. So half the town probably knew I was in here. 
I just ran out the doctor's front door without bothering about my boots. The concrete felt strange under my bare feet as I ran, and there was a strange flowy sensation. And then I noticed I didn't have my clothes on, just my underwear and a medical gown that was wafting out behind me as I ran. I felt like I was moving in slow motion across the town. There goes the grocer, there goes the barber shop, but my legs couldn't get me off the street fast enough. I looked all over for signs of policemen hiding in the shadows, waiting to pounce on me, but I couldn't find them. The white moon was like a spotlight pointing its moonbeam fingers right at me, and there was nowhere to hide. I passed by Billy on the wall, and I thought his eyebrows were turned into an evil black V, making his grin sinister and mocking. He threatened with his milk bottle, which looked yellow and clumpy in the moonlight. I didn't say a word. I pounded on the door to Corwin's office. I didn't even care if I woke him up. I had to see him. I heard from inside. Come in. So I pushed the door open. It stank in his office, which was very weird, but I didn't really register that right away. He was sitting at his desk in full uniform when I ran in. Mr. Corwin, it's the police. That new inspector, she says she'll arrest me if I don't tell everything I've seen here. And I was coming to see you, but I hit my head. And I pointed to my head at this point for emphasis. But you have to protect me. We have to figure out how to save me. I didn't tell her anything, anything at all. I... Corwin was smiling strangely. I couldn't figure it out. I was shaking and sweating. I'm glad you came to me with this, Howie. As am I. Congratulations, Mr. Coxwell. I turned. I hadn't seen, but sitting in a chair off in the corner behind me was Inspector Mowbray. She stood up and extended her hand to me, but she was wearing a suit instead of a police uniform. The last thing I saw before passing out again was a badge on her jacket, D-O-L-A.